our series on the power of giving. We're going to look at the parable that kind of is uh, the meat or the juice behind this whole thing. Okay, and that's in Matthew 25, verse 14 to 30. And we're going to read this together uh, and get a little familiar with it. So bear with me. It is a little bit of a reading, uh, but here we go. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on his journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug it in the ground and hid the Lord's money, his Lord's money. Uh, after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things and I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Okay. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Look, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. And his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you were to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he uh, will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth uh-huh okay so i'm all about context as you guys know so we're going to talk a little bit about context before we dive in okay so first of all we find this particular parable uh of jesus being told in a cluster of a few other parables that are happening around the same time okay so if you look at the book of matthew 24 and 25 you find there's a common theme with all of these parables okay um but there's this idea and this notion that no man will know the time or the day of uh, the Son of Man's coming, right? So Jesus is emphasizing this ideal, that no one is going to know when I am coming again, right? So heads up, okay? So Jesus emphasizes this uh, with talking about the signs of the times and then talking about a few different parables. But one thing you'll notice is that the theme that's common with all of these is this idea of readiness, okay? The theme of readiness, okay, the parable of the talents, even though we commonly look at this parable as a parable talking about, you know, God has given us these talents to use it for his glory or something along the lines of that. I strongly believe that this parable has a much more deeper meaning, okay? This parable is more about how your faithfulness is a way to continually stay prepared 
for Jesus's soon return. And I think if you guys think about it, this parable's actual meaning and theme uh, is extremely under. We don't talk about it, right? We don't take the time to talk about it because we we get this notion that uh, like when it comes to like money and things like that, it becomes kind of a sensitive topic, especially when it comes to the church. Right. Uh, There's this notion and this understanding that some people have outside of the church or even within the church. They think that the church is a place where they just want your money. They just need your money. Uh, You know, I have friends, a lot of friends in South Korea uh, that that talk about how like, you know, churches are like businesses. Right. Uh, People tell me like, oh, why don't you just start a church in Korea and just make lots of money? Right. They just think that church is a place where they hoard money. Okay. Okay. and think about it. Are you guys afraid that maybe one day I'll preach a sermon saying that you need to give money to the church, like give more to the church, right? Like, no, like people are like, ah, like, I don't know, a little uncomfortable, right? And they, <laughs> they feel guilty because like, oh, like, I don't want to give or I don't have money to give, so I'm not going to give anything. And then you start feeling this sense of like guilt, right? Okay, maybe that's not the case for you. But there's people out there that feel that way, right? I've met people that even said like, yo, I would love to come to church, but you know, I don't, I don't have any money. Like I don't have money to give. And it's almost like this, this notion that, that, that you have to have money in order to be a part of the church for some reason. Right. But throughout this series. Okay. What I want to try doing as we talk a little bit about money, as we talk a little bit about this parable of the talents, uh, that I want to challenge you to look at everything that you have, whether it be money, whether it be all your possessions, your abilities, your talents. Uh, And I want you to look at it in a little bit of a different perspective. And I want you to see that by being a good steward of all that we have, in essence, we are continuously preparing for Jesus' soon return. By giving and by being a good steward, we are learning how to be prepared for his return. So with that, uh, we're going to look at this parable and we're going to look at five different takeaways uh, and different lessons on what it means to be a good steward and what we can take away from this particular parable uh, and how we can better prepare ourselves for his coming. So let's go ahead and start with the first one. Number one, what we have is not ours. Okay, so we begin the parable uh, with the story of a man who prepares for his journey. Right. And he goes off to a far country. Uh, but before he does that, he calls his servants in and he delivers his own personal goods to them. So we can already tell that this guy is a man of wealth. This guy has money. Right. Because if he didn't, he probably wouldn't have been able to go on a long journey in the first place and be away from his property and his estates. Okay? We can tell he's wealthy as well, because in the next verse, he's now delegating his possessions to his trustworthy employees. Okay. Now in biblical time, this was actually common practice for wealthy individuals who had slaves uh, to give them different responsibilities. Okay. Even money to hold while they were away. And the reality is in biblical times, this was actually one of the smartest things that any owner could do at a time like this. Okay. Because the fact that they were so trusted, not, not just for the fact that they could hold the money and take care of it, but Masters knew that their trustworthy servants could take that money and do great things with it, right? And they could benefit the master by, by, by caring and utilizing and doing what they needed to do um, with that, okay? But you see, get this. Even though they were expected to handle and care for the money that was given to them, never at one point do the servants 
or maybe your translation says slaves, but never at one point did they think that the possessions that they received from the master was theirs. Okay, never. They understood that they were simply the possessors and not the owners. Okay, they were given only the responsibility to manage, not become owners of all of this stuff. Right, and they clearly understood this. You see, in the same way. We have to begin teaching ourselves and we have to break free from this misconception that we own anything, right? Nothing that we have belongs to you or to me. Okay, we have this understanding, right? I work for this. I paid for this with my hard earned money. I saved all this money so I could have this or I could have that. Right? I spent years and years and years building up my possessions. But we have to break away from this train of thought. I want to challenge you guys to start thinking to yourself. And remember that everything we have, every drop of it, belongs to God. Everything belongs to Him. Psalms 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything, even you and me, do not belong to ourselves. We belong to to God, right? God owns and we have responsibility. God is our master and we are his managers. You see, until we can break free from this misconception and break free from this, this thought process that we have, and we, until we can learn to accept this truth, we will never be able to become good masters of whatever is entrusted to us. Okay, or managers, not masters. Sorry. We have to remember. Our life, our days, our gifts, our abilities, our money, our houses, our cars, clothes, everything that we have, it doesn't belong to us. And we have to remember that it belongs to God. And simply, we are the managers of what God has given to us. Okay. Number two, what we've given uh, or we're given what we can handle. If you look at verse 15 of the parable, we see that the master is giving his talents uh, to three of his trustworthy employees or his servants, right? One person gets five, another gets two, and then the last one gets one talent. And it says very particularly, each according to his ability. And then the master goes off on his journey. Now, uh, as I kind of mentioned before, when we talk about uh, this parable of the talents, sometimes we think it's just talking about like, like ability or skills, right? The talents that we have. But in its raw form, what's being talked about here is referring to large sums of money. Some of your translations may say bags of gold. Um, But the question then comes, how much is a talent? How much is a talent? Well, biblical scholars, uh, they say uh, that a talent is approximately 6,000 denarii, okay? Now, what's a denarii, okay? Um, so in biblical times, if you look in the Bible, uh, it talks about how a denarii or denarius is considered a day's wage, right? So the amount of money you would make in a day is one denarii. So one talent being 6,000 denarii, okay, that's ridiculous, right? So basically what Jesus is saying is this wealth of money that's being given to these servants is like 20 years of work, right? Being placed in their hands. That's a lot, okay? 
Now, scholars have a hard time uh, agreeing on exactly what the specific amount is, but it's very clear that the money being given to these servants is not pocket change. This is not stuff coming out of his little piggy bank, right? This is huge amounts of wealth. Now, it's interesting because each of these servants, and maybe you guys thought like, well, each of these guys gets different amounts of talents, right? And we may think like, well, of course, the one that gets more is going to be more smarter about it, right? The one that gets more is going to be more responsible. The one that has, has the five talents, of course, they're going to be more cautious with that money, right? Why? Like the one with less, like, of course, like, why would they even try? It's just, it's a small amount, not a big deal, okay? But think of it this way. Your responsibility is tied to your ability. The master is giving according to his servant's ability, so this is not saying that like, like you're incapable or you're unworthy of more, but rather what Jesus is painting here, the picture that he's painting here is this, okay? He's painting a picture that God's kingdom does not operate on the notion of what is fair and unfair, but rather on what is best for you. You see, because this is what we have to remember, okay? It's that whatever the amount is given to us may be, some may receive more, some may receive less. But the point is this. One, whatever God gives, know that God gives because he's giving because he knows that's what's best for you. Not because he's trying to be fair. He's giving to you because he knows what's best for you. And two, that we should be responsible and faithful to what he has given, regardless of the amount. You see, the amount in this parable is not the issue. It's not about how much one person received and how little another received. God is giving what is, according to him, the best for you, okay? But we may think like, come on, pastor, like, that's not fair, right? That's what a lot of, a lot of you, you younger people will say to your sibling, to your parents, right? Hey, that's not fair. Like, what, that, like why can't God give me more? Like, why can't I get this? And why does he get that? Why does they have to get a car before I get a car, right? Give me what they have. I want what they have too. But let's remember, when God is giving us what is best, he knows what we can handle. So he gives accordingly to that. When we think otherwise, when we say like, well, no, that's not fair. Like, you need to give me that too. We're basically saying this. We're saying that, that we know ourselves better than God knows us. Sounds weird, right? It is weird. It doesn't make sense, right? It's not supposed to make sense, okay? And that's the thing. It's not about what amount of talents we receive versus anyone else, right? It's not about the financial status that I have compared to the rest of this world, okay? It's about what we do with it, right? Because God is giving according to what is best for you and I. Okay, our next point, number three, we must invest what we've been given. Okay. So when we continue with this parable, we find that the first servant, at once, as soon as he receives his five talents, he goes out and he goes and gains five more. Right? He goes and trades, he gets five more. We find the second servant doing exactly the same thing. But when you look at verse 18, uh, the third servant has this very odd and unusual uh, approach. Right? Instead of taking and instead of investing in this one talent that he received, um, he simply digs a hole in the ground, buries it, and he thinks that hiding the master's money is the right thing for him to do. Now, in biblical times, 
this was actually a very common practice uh, in terms of hiding valuables, right? There's a lot of other stories in the Bible where we see people burying things, right? Uh, and it's interesting because it definitely is one of the safest things to do. You know, if you want to hide your stuff, bury it, okay? But it's by far the least profitable way of dealing with your possessions, right? Okay, and that makes sense, okay? Now, as I said earlier, it was almost expected that servants, when a master entrusted their, their servants, uh, that they would do good with whatever they were given, okay? And even though that these servants had no timetable of when the master returned, it just says the master is going off on this long journey. It was important that the servants were ready. They were prepared, okay, by diligently working on bettering or doing something good with the talents that they were supposed to manage. You see, when God gives, it is so vital and so important for us that we don't lose what is given. But what's even more important is that taking the time to invest in whatever is given to you and to I. To not let it just sit, but rather to cultivate it, to grow it, to utilize it. I want to share you, uh, with you guys a story of a dude named uh, Antonio. Okay? Now, Antonio is a guy that loved music. How many of you guys like music? I love music, you guys. Okay? But uh, uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys like music. You listen to music right? when you're working, when you're you know, supposed to be doing your homework, you're listening to music, you're you know, gaming, you're listening to music, whatever it may be. Uh, but this man named Antonio, our boy, he loved music. But Antonio had a problem. Okay? He had a very high and squeaky voice, okay? And so when he tried to uh, uh, try out for a choir in the Cremona Boys Choir, obviously he failed. No one wanted to hear his voice in a choir. So he took some violin lessons, uh, and uh, that didn't go too well uh, because the neighbors were persuading his parents, like, please, stop your son from practicing the violin, Okay. But he still wanted to make music. He loved music so much. He was like, you know what? I want to keep doing this. This is my favorite thing to do. Right? Now, even his friends. Okay? Even his friends gave him the most difficult time ever. Okay? Uh, because they felt like the only talent that Antonio had was something called whittling. Do you guys know what whittling is? Okay. Adam's like, yes. Okay. What is whittling? Not whistling. Whittling. Aha, it's carving wood. Okay, it's like carving, okay? So his friends were like, Antonio, the only thing you're good at is whittling. Just carve wood, okay? So Antonio is just like, okay, whatever. Uh, later in life, you know, he gets older. He gets an apprenticeship, right? And he serves to a violin maker. And his whittling talent, okay, was started to grow into this skill of carving. And then his hobby started to become his craft. And he worked patiently and he worked faithfully. And by the time that Antonio died, he left over 1,500 violins, each one that had the name Antonio Stradivarius. Okay, so if you're into music, if you're into anything string related, then you know Antonio Stradivarius is the most sought after violin in the world, right? Some of them sell for thousands, hundreds and thousands of dollars, okay? You see, Antonio couldn't sing, he couldn't really play. He couldn't really teach, okay? But his responsibility was to use his ability, okay? And his violins, even to this day, continue to create beautiful music. 
You see, our potential is God's gift to you and I. What we do with it is our gift back to him. So are you, the question is this, are you investing which, into what you have been given, regardless of the amount that has been given to you? Or are you taking your, your gift, your talent, are you burying it and keeping it hidden from others? You see, there's something really special when it comes to investing in whatever is given to us. Okay? Remember, this whole, this whole parable is pointing to the ideal of being ready, right? The theme of readiness. And this is how we ready ourselves, right? How we continue to prepare not only ourselves, but by cultivating and investing in the talents that God has given us, whether it be ability, skill, or even money, okay? We are not only preparing ourselves for Jesus' soon return, but we are allowing that to be an avenue for others to also be prepared for the master's return. The next uh, point that I want to bring out, number four, is a day of accountability is coming. Okay. Uh, so for you older people and for you guys that will eventually start getting jobs, uh, one of the things that I had a huge fear of was taxes. I was very afraid of doing my taxes because uh, I always thought that, um, you know, if I forgot something or didn't, you know, put something in my tax return or like if I didn't do something right, then I was afraid that something bad was going to happen to me. Right. I had a friend that studied uh, accounting and works as an accountant now, but I would always like ask him questions like, hey, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And then he would always scare me and he'd be like. Oh, you're going to go to jail, man. Like they're going to, they're going to, they're going to come, come after you, take all your possessions and throw you in jail. Right. Uh, and he would scare me all the time. Uh, but he would always threaten me and say that, dude, you're going to get audited by the IRS. Right now. Uh, I don't know anyone that wants to be audited by the IRS. Right. Just even thinking about it scares me. Okay. Uh, not because like I'm doing my taxes wrong. It's just because I'm not sure if I'm doing it right or wrong. But anyways, uh, let me tell you this. There's going to be an audit that is far more greater than that of the IRS. And that's going to be from God. Okay. Just as the servants in our parables uh, today that we're looking at were audited after the master had returned. Right. He was taking account of what was done and what they did. We, too, will eventually have to give an account for how we've used uh, the talents and what we've been given. Okay. I think even more so now, especially at a time like today, we have to realize that Jesus is truly coming again and that there will be a day when we will stand before the throne. And I'm sure a lot of this, I've heard this growing up, especially in the Adventist church, right? We hear it. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon, right? Let's be ready. And we say, yes, we believe it in our heads. Okay. But we really don't take this to heart. We continue to live our lives just as if it was any other day. Right. We live our lives thinking that, well, like, yeah, Jesus is coming soon. But, you know, like I got life. I got things to do. Like I got I got my work. I've got my school. I've got my play. Right. You see, if we would only think more of his return, I think we would become more focused on the eternal return of our investments. Romans 14 verse 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You see. It was the duty of a servant, not only to maintain and to cultivate and to take care of the talents or whatever was given to them. Okay. They had to keep this in mind. Not only was it that though, but they had to remember 
that one day the master is going to return and settle his accounts with them. You see, friends, I strongly believe, and I cannot emphasize this more than enough, that Jesus is coming soon. Okay, So that means we need to learn to be faithful in doing whatever he gives us to do, whether that be in money, whether that be in possessions, whether that be in the talents or abilities. Okay, Jesus has invested something great in you. Okay? And one day he's coming back to claim what was given to you. Your job may be big, your job may be small, but whatever it is, I want to challenge you to do your best to be ready for this ultimate audit that Jesus has for us in the end. The last thing I want to talk about and kind of emphasize today is our final point. What we do with what we have reveals our view of God. So today I want to wrap up by talking about how the way we understand and see God is directly correlated and is effective, uh, affects how we take the talents that God gives us and how we use them. If you look at verse 20 to 25, it's just kind of the latter half of the parable. We find the response of the servants, right? They report back to the master of what they did um, and uh, with the talents that that was entrusted to them. Um, But if you look at the language, the wording that's used, some of your translations may be a little different. But the first servant receives five, right? And returns back an additional five, right? And he says this to the master. He says, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look. I have gained five more talents besides them. The second service does the same thing, but instead of five, it's two, right? Now, if you, if you look at the word look, okay, this is the word that I want to focus on right here. Your translation may say behold or see, but basically the connotation of the word is that the servants are ecstatic. They're excited. They're so happy that the master is back, but they're so excited and eager to share with the results of their hard work. Look, look what I have, right? Uh, Parents, if you have children and they want to show you maybe something that they drew or something that they created or something that they did, look, mom, look, dad, right? And maybe you kids, you do that to your parents. You want to show your friends or show your parents of this great thing that you have made, okay? This is exactly how the, the servants, the first two, feel towards their master. They're so excited to share with the result of what has been created their hard work what has happened the goodness that has come from their diligence okay and then the master replies to both of the servants in the same way and he says well done good and faithful servant you were faithful over a few things and now i will make you ruler over many things enter into the joy of your lord so you see to me i think this is very clear and hopefully you guys see this as well the first two servants had a very clear picture of who god was of who their master was okay and because of that because they understood who god was they were super eager they were super excited to be faithful to him and they wanted to do good okay because they understood who their master was right they see their this god as a god of 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 goodness okay of mercy love of grace and by very naturally they want to be faithful Okay? And in the same way for us, if we have a good understanding of a better understanding of who God is, then very naturally we want to be faithful to him. We want to serve him. We want to do good. We want to go out and give what we have. Our actions become a result 
of our understanding of who God is and uh, have that relationship uh, with him. You see, the result of the servant's faithfulness resulted in the master giving them more to be responsible over. In the same way, we too, when we are faithful to God and go and do good as a result of this, you will start to see that the goodness of God more in your life because God is entrusting you with more, right? It's a domino effect. It's a snowball effect, right? It builds and builds and builds. And once you taste and see how good God is, then you start to experience it more, 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 and more, okay? But when you look at the last guy, the one talent guy, instead of investing, he buries it, right? And then he gives this kind of lengthy excuse uh, to the master. He says, he begins by saying, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. You see, clearly the third servant had a very different perspective and a different understanding of who his master was. He had the very wrong view of the master. He decided from the very start that he would respond in a completely different way. Because he saw the master as harsh, because he saw the master as cruel and and hard and difficult, instead of loving and gracious, he responds and reacts in a way that he thinks is best, right? He thinks like, well, master is mean, evil, terrible. Let me just bury it because I, you know, I don't want to deal with it, right? You see, the reason why this affects us so much is the way that we see God becomes the way that we filter everything we do. For example, if you see God as a tyrant, if you see God as a, is a bully, right? Then everything you do is going to be filtered to, through that misunderstanding that God is a bully. So, you know, everything I do, like, oh, well, God is a tyrant. God is going to punish me if I, if I do this or that. So I'm going to be really cautious and tiptoe around everything. Okay? You may end up holding a grudge against God because you think, oh, well, God is holding things back for me. God is this mean, terrible person. And so, like, he's not giving me this because of that, right? And you start thinking these negative thoughts and the way you behave and you react to him is directly affected. You may stop praying. You may stop reading the Bible. You may stop going to church, right? Because you think God is this kind of tyrant, right? You see, this is the point. Your preconceived notions will prevent you from seeing the master as a God of grace and love. And as a result, you refuse to serve him with what he's given you. When we blame God, we end up burying our blessings. You see, church, I think it's so important that, that I know some of you guys may feel like, you know, you receive this $20 bill or you have all of these things and you're not really a fan of, of giving or helping or, or, or doing these things for those that are less fortunate than you. Or maybe you struggle with that and you, you just like, there's like, you feel like there's a part of you. It's too much. Like, I can't give this away. Right. But I strongly believe it's because we have this, this idea and this, this, this twisted thought of who God is. And maybe if we just change the way that we imagine and see God, when we look to the biblical truth and see how beautiful, how gracious and how loving he is, then how much more easier will it be for us to simply give without hesitation, to do good without hesitation, to go and make a difference in this world and share of the goodness of our master because we understand that God is so good. Now, I don't know everyone's story. I don't know where your spiritual walk has begun and how far it's taken you. Maybe you've been hurt by the church or hurt by, by some things that you've heard about God. 
But I, I want to challenge you to, to maybe reconsider those things, that those notions of those thoughts of a God that you are worshiping. And maybe see that there is a greater God. There is something greater in the Bible that describes the beautiful nature of who he is as a person and how, how infectious that becomes in our life. So that everything that we have, we realize, well, it doesn't belong to me anyway. God is giving me what I can handle. God wants me to take this and use this for his glory. And that one day God is going to come back and see what we've done. And, and finally, the way that we see and understand him affects everything that we do. Church, we're going to embark on this adventure together for the next month. It's going to be a challenge, not only for me, but I hope it's going to be a challenge for you as well. That through this Good Steward initiative, through this series that we have together, that you will have a better understanding of who the master is, what God wants for you. And in turn, I pray that you will seek to do good, that you will be eager and excited to say, look, Lord, like, look at what we're doing, because this is so beautiful, right? And as we prepare our hearts and our minds for Jesus' soon return, I pray that we can be encouraged to continuously do more and to give and to share the gospel message with others. You see, I think it's so true that God wants to truly pour out his blessings upon us. But God isn't going to force us. God isn't going to shove down his blessings down your throat. God wants us to understand his true character. God wants us to, in turn, experience it because we desire it, right? Isaiah shared with us last week in his little testimony that God withholds all of this, okay? Because sometimes we really don't want it, but the moment that we desire and we want it so bad because we know how beautiful it is, then God is more than willing to pour that out into your life. The last verse that we read, uh, verse 29, for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. You see, I strongly believe it's possible that through our stewardship, by being good stewards of what we own and what we have, our giving is a direct reflection of the faithfulness that we can have in God. And once we get the ball rolling, once we start this, this domino effect and this snowball effect, God will continue to pour out opportunity after opportunity for you to experience it more. By doing this, by understanding and staying prepared through the faithfulness of our giving and our doing, we can experience a greater blessing of his soon return. Church, as we dive deeper into the many facets of the power of giving, as we have guest speakers come and share a little bit about what it means to give, I pray that you would be open to seeing how God can work tremendously in your life. And in prayer, as we pray daily, as we meditate in the word, that God will inspire you to do something with that money. And if, you, if you're not, you know, if you didn't get that money, I pray that God will inspire you to see what you have to take and to do good and share the story. Church, let's pray.
And so today I wanted to expand uh, and go a little further on that topic and say, okay, well, if everything that we have is really God's, yes, um, but even if we know that, why is it still so hard to give? And so as we go forward, uh, we're going to be looking at that question. Why is it still so hard to give for us? Um, our text today is found in Acts chapter 3. And when we think about giving, uh, most of the time we don't really come to this story, or maybe you do, but at least for me, I don't really think about this story too much. Uh, it's a very well-known story. Uh, there's even a song about it that I learned when I was younger. I don't know if they still teach it, but uh, I just wanted to set the context a little bit of this uh, story before we get into the actual reading of it. So this is in Acts chapter 3, and in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 2, uh, and we had Pentecost. And if you guys remember, Pentecost is when the disciples, uh, minus Judas, were all gathered in the upper room. And they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes. Um, they are struck with such conviction and passion. They go out to preach and speaking in tongues, speaking different languages. And thousands and thousands <clears throat> are added to the church um, that day. And so that's how chapter 2 ends. And the church is just growing like crazy at this point. And so we come to chapter 3. And Peter has just given the sermon of his life, right? After people call the, the disciples who are preaching in different tongues, they call them crazy, they call them drunk. And Peter, Peter stands up and says, no, these people are not drunk. They are just filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is right after he denied Jesus. Or not right after, but this is the same person that denied Jesus three times, right? And so this is where we come to the story where we pick up on uh, one endeavor of Peter and John. And so I just wanted to read the story a little bit once again, starting with verse 1. So if you guys have your Bibles or electronic Bibles, uh, if you could turn there with me. Acts chapter 3, uh, we'll start with verse 1, and I'll read just to verse 7. Um, and so it reads, now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb was carried, and they lay daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. Okay, so as we go through this, I just kind of want to break it down a little bit. Uh, exactly what's happening, right? We know from the very first sentence that Peter and John are going to pray. They're going to church, um, just like another just like any other day. Okay. And there's this man here that has been lame from birth, or I guess just paralyzed, assuming from the waist down, since uh, we see in the story that he actually asked for alms, uh, lifted up his palms. So that means that uh, his hands are still working. So we can assume that he's probably paralyzed from the waist down. And it says that he's been here every single day, um, which is a natural ritual for him, and he's been this way since birth. 
And so, you know, what happens that he asks him for money. Peter says his famous lines, you know, uh, King James Version or the song, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Uh, man is healed, boom, and a story, right? Uh, well, I think it's really interesting to dive a little bit deeper. And especially when I read the Bible, I kind of try and see a little bit of the emotions and the thoughts that are going through the characters. Obviously, we don't always get to see that. But there are, I think there are certain context clues that we can pick up on to see what was going through uh, their heads. And so one thing that I wanted to point out is we see in verse 3 that this man asked Peter and John for alms. But in verse 5, it says that he gives them his attention. So it leads us to question, well, what exactly in what manner was this man asking for alms in verse three if not with his attention uh this can kind of lead us to conclude well maybe he is just going through the motions right it's just another day for him another day in his life of begging and he doesn't care anymore um the fact that peter says uh asked him to look at them means that he probably wasn't looking at them in the first place and so if you can imagine this scenario right we see this man who's just begging everybody who's passing by, not even looking them in the eyes, uh, just asking and shouting every single time somebody passes by. <clears throat> and we can see how this can, this can get this. It says that he's been there, or he lays there daily at the gate, every single day. And so at this point, it, it's, it's just a ritual for him. He's just going to get what he can get, and uh, it, pride or you know, saving face is nothing is completely irrelevant to this man. And so this part really gets to me because uh, anyone who has ever had to ask for money knows how hard it is to actually do so. Uh, I'm sure when you guys were younger, everyone had to fundraise or at, uh, to some degree for your school or for anything. Uh, for me, in my private school, we used to have this thing called the jogathon. Where, when I look back on it, it's actually pretty uh, pretty strange. But um, <laughs> we would fundraise. We would have a specific day where we the whole school is like two hundred kids, small private school. We would go out to the field and we would run or jog for an hour, and basically you would have people sponsor you and say, okay. Uh, I will give you $3 for every lap that you run. Oh, and this is how we fundraise. And um, at the end of the day, you know, they would they would pay the money and we would send it off to whatever we were fundraising for that year. Um, yeah, now that I look back at it, it's a little interesting. You're just forcing kids to run for an hour, like almost five miles every single year for money. But uh, it was for a good cause. So I definitely have good memories. Uh, but I remember the fundraising part that, you know, some of the people here who have watched me grow up in the church um, might have experienced uh, maybe like my parents or my mom or dad asking for some money as far as to sponsor me in that. Because for me, when I was younger, I was just so scared to ask anybody for any money or to sponsor me. My mom did it all for me. Uh, and, you know, they just... They always just feel bad and say, oh, okay, yeah, sure, I'll give you I'll give you $10 per lab or whatever. Um, but for me, I was just so afraid of rejection and the shame and people just 
sponsoring me because they felt bad or they pitied me or something like that. You know, it was just so hard for me to do that. Uh, even in high school too, for my teams as well. Um, now, if you think about that, right, the amount of times that kids have to uh, go out and ask for money and these kind of things. Yeah, you have your classic lemonade stand or anything, cookies, and people are like, oh, it's so cute. Let me buy some for you. But um, it's a lot different when it's an adult, right? I mean, there's a reason why there's no grown man lemonade stands out there. You know, there's there's no market for that. Uh, but if we come back to the story, right? This is kind of where he is, this man. He doesn't care anymore. Uh, he's been doing this for his entire life. And he's kind of just accepted it. You know, this is his role. Back then, they thought that people who were born with physical disabilities or ailments, right, were um, somewhat cursed by God. And so, you know, after hearing this for years and years of his life, he probably just said, yeah, that's probably true. And so he's begging uh, at this at the gate of this temple uh, without even looking at people. But what happens next is what really, really uh, hit me hard when I was reading this um, is that Peter, right? It says that Peter fixes his eyes on him. And he says, look at us. Um, when I read this, man, it really, really just really hit me hard. Uh, he told the beggar, uh, look at us. Uh, I want to share a story with you guys, which is a, it's a true story. It's really embarrassing for me, but I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, a little while ago, I was driving home one day, um, just a random day, and I realized I was low on gas. So I pulled into a gas station that was near my house. And, and when I did, I somehow uh, made eye contact with this woman who she looked like she was homeless. She was kind of just like in the middle of the gas station. And she kept looking at me uh, through my car. And as I was trying to find a spot for gas, and for some reason, I got so nervous and so scared. I don't know why. And as I was pulling up to the pump, right, I was circling around to try and get there. She, I could tell she was still looking at me, but I was trying not to look at her. And she, I was going to, I was closing in on this one pump and she started walking towards where I was going to be. Um, can you guys guess what I did? I told you it's a very embarrassing story, but, uh, I, I drove I drove right past that pump and I left the gas station the same exact way I came in. Yes, it's very embarrassing. Um, anybody watching me would have would have thought, man, what is this guy doing? He just made a huge circle and left the gas station same way he came in. What is wrong with him? Uh, I went to another gas station and as I was filling up. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about what I just did, you know? And why did I run away? Why was I so scared? Why did I try so hard to, to avoid eye contact with just a random person? Uh, only thing that I could think of was, or the only thing that I was thinking was, man, she's probably going to ask me for money or something. And, you know, I don't want to lie and say, I don't. My dad just gave me money that morning. Uh, she presses me, you know, I can't get away because I got to wait for the gas or something. But, but looking back, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that, and you guys probably think the same thing too, that I definitely should not have ran away. And as soon as I left, I knew that what I had to do was wrong. And I just felt so ashamed of myself. 
But it's definitely not the first time, at least for me, uh, that I have tried to avoid eye contact or just avoid those kind of people in general. I mean, let's be honest, it's probably been a while since you've last been to church, but anyone who comes off the freeway um, to get to church, especially I come off the two freeway, knows that there's always some homeless person waiting at the off-ramp, right? As you get off the freeway, just standing there. And we do all sorts of things, right? We try to look at our phone and, oh, you know, what time is it? Are we going to be late? Or we act like we're grabbing something in the bag or checking on our kids like they... I don't know, flew out in the last five seconds or something. Uh, we just do all these crazy things. Uh, why? Why Why do we do this? Why do we try so hard to, to avoid these situations? Um, and to be honest, when we look at it, we think, why are we so uncomfortable when these kind of people look at us? But we look at Peter, and he just says... He just says to the man who everyone else is trying to avoid, he just says, he says, look at us. He wants to make eye contact. He wants to look at this person, this man, and he wants his attention. So it begs the question, what, what's the difference between Peter and John and us? You know, what causes them to want to look at this beggar, this man who everyone else is trying to avoid? And what causes us to want to run away as fast as possible. Uh, well, I couldn't really find too much, but I tried to look at the, uh, took the initiative of looking at the original Greek, and uh, well, I didn't find anything. But uh, I took, I started to think a little bit more, and I don't know for certain. I think there are a lot of reasons that go into this, but just wanted to present a few of the things that I thought of as far as why we feel so uncomfortable in these situations. Uh, number one, maybe we just don't want to get our hands dirty, right? Um, literally and figuratively. Maybe we're actually just really greedy people and we really don't want to give them anything that we have, you know? Or I think one of the big ones for me is like, sometimes I think, okay, $10, $15, $20, that's not going to do much anyways for them. It's not going to help them that much. So I, I want to do something bigger. You know, I want to help them in a bigger way. But when you think about that and you end up not doing anything at all, or maybe, just maybe, the reason why we feel so uncomfortable is because there is a battle going on in our minds. Right? We know what the Bible says and how we should treat the poor, how we should treat those in need. Uh, we know what we ought to do, but we also already know that we're not going to do it. We've, it's already been decided. And why? Because that is our default. We are, as human beings, <laughs> we're bad. We're sinful, right? We're greedy unless told otherwise. You never got to tell a kid how to say mine. That's just that's just our nature. That's where we are. And maybe we've heard the truth, right? As Christians, we've heard it, and we know it, and maybe can even recite some of it, but we haven't really digested it yet and allowed it to flow and through the rest of our bodies and our actions. So once again, what is the difference? Well, if that's why we're uncomfortable, because there's 
some kind of battle going on in our minds that we know what we ought to do, but we already know that we're not going to do it for some reason. What allowed Peter and John to want to do what we so naturally hate to do? Uh, I think the answer lies in the fact that they had something that they wanted to give. And they didn't have much. I mean, in fact, if you read it, he literally, Peter literally says, silver and gold I do not have. It means I got nothing. I got no money. Uh, I have no possessions on me. And I got the clothes on my backs, the shoes on my feet. And I got one other thing, all right? Uh, relationship with God. And that's the only thing I can give you. You know, I don't want to give you $10. I don't want to give you $100, something that's not going to last. You know, I want to give you something that is going to be there and it's going to be worth it. You know, the love that will never burn out or water from a well that will never dry or the one being Jesus who will never, ever leave you. That's what I want to give you. See, they had already decided to give up everything they had for one thing in return, that being a relationship with Jesus to be a disciple for him. They already made a prior commitment to dedicate their lives to giving the good news. It wasn't it wasn't a game time decision, right? It's not, oh, you know, we wake up in the morning and we roll out of bed and say, hmm, should we give today? No, their lives are not about if they should give today, but simply just about who they should give to. Uh, because there were just so many people in need that they saw. But let's keep in mind that the disciples weren't always like that, right? We're talking about the same Peter, the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. After living with him, spending every single moment of every day with him for three and a half years, he goes out there and says, no, I don't even know who that is. I don't even know who you're talking about. Uh, That's the same Peter that we read about in this story who wants to give everything that he has. And... For me, it gives us hope and it gives me hope that if Peter can come to this point, right, I believe that we can too, because I highly doubt that anybody today, if asked if you were a Christian, um, you would blatantly say no. Uh, I mean, it's a different, definitely a different scenario. Um, But I think that most of us would at least be, yeah, we would say yes, you know, a Christian, we probably wouldn't say much more than that, but at least we would say that. And so... If Peter can get there from being that low to being this high, uh, I believe that we can too. And, um, the secret is being intentional, right? Having a plan. Because if we wait for the moment to for us to decide if what we're going to do, if we wait for the moment to decide if we're going to give or not, I can promise you, nine out of ten times, you're not going to. Because... There's, there's no time to think. It only takes, I don't know, five seconds to walk by somebody uh, who's sitting down on the street. It only takes less than that to drive by somebody. You know, we don't have the time to wrestle with our minds and our conscience about what we should do. It should already be a given that we should give, per se. So, you know, what does this actually look like for us? I mean, let's be honest. Some of us can't say what Peter said for two reasons. Number one, 
some of us don't have a relationship with God, and that's that's just how it is. And obviously, you can't give what you don't have, right? And if that sounds like you, then definitely get this first. Um, intimacy with God is all up to you. It's not God who's lacking. It's not God who's unwilling to invest in this relationship, right? It's all up to us if we want to have a relationship with God. And the, the next part, the other reason why this could be difficult is because, well, Peter and John says that they have nothing, but uh, I'm sure that we all have something, right? For the rest of us, we can't say what Peter said because, you know, we got some cash, we got some possessions. So what do we do about that? Do we just walk on and continue and disregard this story and say, you know, that's a, that's a nice, nice story for us to read, but it doesn't really apply to me. Well, I think that this doesn't, if this is you, if this is describing you, which I think it is describing uh, mostly everybody here, um, I believe that it doesn't change anything. The principle remains the same. You give what you have. If you have the gospel, definitely give that. And if you have some possessions, give those too. Uh, I, I want to take the time today. I, want, I hope that you guys can take the time today to prepare your hearts and minds to learn how to give. Because honestly, if I'm just being honest with myself, I really don't know how to give. This, this GSI, I mean, I honestly have no idea what to do with this $20. Um, and I think this is a great experiment, not just maybe for everyone else too, but especially for me to learn, right? To be intentional and to have this on my mind that, okay, I have this $20 and I need to give. What am I going to do with it? And that's constantly, I'm just trying to think about what I can do. And that, that is just the beginning of learning how to give as in not just the $20, but as a mindset of life to go out every single day and to think about how can I give, how can I help somebody else in need? Because at the end of the day, right, what Pastor Tim said last week, everything is God's. And so us being greedy about it doesn't make sense. It's only giving um, what was never yours in order to obtain something that will never uh, that will never expire. So I hope that we can take the time today to prepare your hearts and minds to learn how to give. Uh, you know, maybe it could be saying, next time I see a person in need, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy them a meal and pray with them. You know, uh, maybe that's too far for you, but maybe we can just go. You know, next person I see, I'm gonna give a dollar with a glow track wrapped inside. I don't know. Or I'm going to have a bag ready in my car with basic supplies. And I think a lot of us, uh, we have certain ministries, if I'm not wrong, in our church that's already do this, which is great. But if not, definitely just on an individual basis that we should be ready. Or maybe just give the next person your jacket, you know. Uh, yeah, I want to make a commitment to you guys um, today that uh, whatever it is for me, Next time I see a person, no matter what, no matter what I have or don't have with me, which I hope that I do have something, but if I don't, no matter how late I am or wherever I'm going, I'm going to help them. And I'm going to make that commitment to you guys today, and hopefully you guys can make a similar one as well. Uh, you don't have to just give them stuff, right, and leave. Maybe just give them your time. Maybe just listen to them. 
treat them, you know, like a basic human being because they've probably been treated uh, as so much less by everyone else who doesn't even want to look at them and just walks right on by. Now, why is this? Why why should we do this? Because <clears throat> that is what the call of a Christian requires us to do. And when Jesus says <clears throat> in Matthew 25, hopefully we can hear these words when he says, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. So let's strive to hear that on that day, to hear those words on that day. Uh, let's pray. these past four weeks, we've been looking at many different aspects of how um, uh, we give and the power of why giving is so important in the Christian walk. We've talked about the, the parable of the talents. We've looked at the attitude and the intention that, that Christians should give when it comes to giving. And Isaiah last week do- took a deeper dive into this ideal of giving. And hopefully that encouraged you to think and to ponder upon your status with God in terms of giving. So today, uh, as we wrap up, I thought about the many different things that we could talk about, but I want to wrap up talking about the challenge that we have in giving uh, and ultimately how we can overcome these challenges uh, that we may face when it comes to uh, the giving that we are called to do. Now, hopefully by now you guys have come to realize that through this series and through the messages that I've shared with you, uh, that giving is important, I would say essential uh, to being a Christian, right? I would go as far as to say that if you fail to learn and understand the significance of giving, that it's very hard to live uh, a life as a Christian, okay? But quite often, more than not, uh, I think that many of us and many believers, even me myself, we run up this wall when it comes to reasons why we don't give. Okay, Uh, maybe we've all heard or maybe even said some of these excuses. I've definitely found myself saying this uh, every so often. Uh, But sometimes we say like, well, you know, like I would give, but I have to save money for this next purchase or this next investment that I have. Right. Or I have to say I would give, but I have to save money for my future or I have to save money for my children or for their future. Right. Or I need money because I don't have enough to pay the bills. Um, Or maybe we say things like, you know, oh, I don't have the time because, you know, I have to get to an appointment by a certain time or, well, I'm busy, you know, all day I've been working and stuff. So I need to go home and get some rest or, you know, I'm tired. I didn't get enough sleep last night, so I can't really sorry, I can't spare any time or any of my talent for you. Or maybe we've said things and made excuses along the lines of, you know, uh, I would love to give, but maybe I'll give when I'm in a better place. Maybe I'll I'll give my time, my money, my energy, whatever it may be, when I have more. You know, and I I don't want you guys to feel like I'm calling you out, right? Maybe you you feel like that's you, or maybe you've said some of those things, or maybe you've heard of people saying these things, and I'm not here to call anyone out. 
Uh, just as Paul refers to himself as like the king of sinners, I would say that uh, I could say that about myself as the king of excuses, right? Uh, my friends in high school, uh, a lot of the times would ask me uh, actually to come up with excuses uh, so that they could get away or get out of doing things. And so I would be the, the excuse producer, right? And so people would come to me and people would ask me like, okay, Tim, like, how do I get out of this situation? Like, what kind of excuse works? Like, what makes people like feel like bad for me? And then I don't have to do it, right? When it, whether it be homework, whether it be like, you know, getting out of an appointment or getting out of a, a obligation, whatever it was, people People would ask me, okay? Uh, now, often, a lot of the times, and maybe you notice this about yourself or maybe about people that give excuses in general, the reason why we give excuses is maybe we feel uncomfortable about doing whatever that may be. Or maybe that thing is quite low on our list of priorities, and so we don't give it as much attention as we probably should. Uh, but for me, uh, that was usually the case, right? When it came to not wanting to do something um, or uh, trying to find a way to give myself more time or maybe just uh, not accomplish certain things because I just really didn't care, I would dish out my list of excuses. And I did this a lot, especially when I would be like late to work or late to class. Um, but one day when I was dishing out my list of excuses for being late to work way back when, not, not as of now, but way back when, uh, my employer at the time, my boss at the time, uh, he said something to me that really just changed the way that I thought and really just made me approach excuses in a totally different light. But basically, I came up late to work. It was like 30 minutes late, clearly just very late. And I came to him and I just said, yeah, you know, like last night something happened. Oh, there was traffic on the road down here, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like saying all these like really silly things. And he said, Tim, if you have time to make an excuse or to think of an excuse for me, then you have time to be on time. Okay. Now you guys might be thinking like, uh, that's not as profound as I thought it was going to be. Or you may think like, um, okay, like, so what? Right. But it really got me thinking and it really got me to think, uh, how I made all these excuses all the time, but how unnecessary it became and how it became a crutch to my life. Right. Um, and I started to realize, you know what, like, you know, maybe I just need to stop making excuses and just make things happen, right? Stop using excuses as a crutch to my life and just do it, right? Just like a Nike commercial would say. Now, I strongly believe when it comes to excuses, one of the biggest challenges and the struggles that many Christians face today, uh, when it comes to this ideal of giving, is that we don't feel comfortable, right? It's easier for us to make an excuse. It's easier for us to use an excuse as a crutch to not give, right? You see, we talk about giving in church, right? We, we emphasize it so much and we understand the power and the importance and significance of giving. But it's just so hard to put that into action, right? So today, uh, I want to uh, take the time to look at a particular group of people that faced a very similar challenge and I would even say uh, made some excuses, right? Uh, but let's go ahead and turn our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 15. And I know it's a, it's a little bit to read, uh, but let's go ahead and go through this because I think this is really powerful. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8, uh, 1 to 15. And this is what it says. And I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. So it says this. 
It says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And we urged Titus that as he had begun, as he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must, uh, you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is acceptable according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased uh, and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may lack their supply, and their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it was written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered litter, little had no lack. Aha. All right. So this passage and so much more, there's so much content that I wish we could just cover everything. Uh, but for sake of time and for the focus of today's message, we're not going to go through everything. But I want to focus on just a few things that paint this picture for us and wrap up kind of our series of giving and kind of a challenge for us to live out. Now, first and foremost, we have to understand, I'm a context person, so we have to understand, what is this letter, okay? Well, this is a letter to the church in Corinth, and it was penned by uh, the Apostle Paul, okay? And uh, you'll notice that when we look at the letters of Paul, uh, they're super interesting for many different reasons, but one of the big reasons why they're interesting is, is that when we examine and study these letters, we have to understand that Paul was writing to address something, okay? Uh, most of the time, Paul is not writing just out of the blue, out of nowhere. But Paul is writing in response of whether it was something that he heard or whether it was something that was reported to him, uh, whether it be through a messenger or maybe somebody wrote him a letter. Paul is responding to certain issues and things that were um, asked of him. And so when you think of it that way, when you look at the letters of Paul, you find that there's something very interesting in terms of the context of which the people were living in, the issues that they were facing and why that mattered to Paul. Right. Paul pinpoints these things through his letters. And so we can get a better understanding of what's going on in their lives and in their life. Right. So when we look to the letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, um, he wrote two. well, 
the, the scholars tend to say that there are multiple letters that are missing that we don't have. Uh, but what we do have in the Bible, there's two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But when you look at the first letter, uh, it points to all the issues that the church in Corinth were facing. Okay? They face layers upon layers and different levels of sin. Okay? And as a church, they were heavily divided because of these many issues that they were facing. Okay? So Paul, in his letter, is, is laying down the law. right? And he's just saying, you know what, you guys? like, Let me explain to you the use of spiritual gifts. Let me explain to you how marriage and singleness is supposed to work. Let me explain to you how worship should look. Um, why the Lord's Supper is so important and how we should conduct that. And the list goes on and on. So if you look through 1 Corinthians, you'll notice that. That Paul is pinpointing pointing each of these different issues by explaining to them what they should be doing because this was a church that was so broken and so divided and torn apart. Okay. So uh, if we look, uh, if we fast forward, right, into 2 Corinthians, we find a very much different tone, right? Paul is talking much more calmly, okay? Uh, Before, we're talking about all the struggles that they were facing, but now Paul is talking about maintaining peace, Right? And reminding followers and the people of the church in Corinth to be united and to be with one another. Okay? So in this sense, when we look at 2 Corinthians and compare it to 1 Corinthians, we notice that the, the, the tone, we notice that the, the approach in which Paul is taking this letter is much more, I guess, nicer. Right? It's, it's more calm. Okay? And it provides very clear guidance for them and how to maintain that. But also it gives us a very clear picture of how we too uh, should uh, live our life today. And he continues this very particular section in chapters 8 and chapter 9. And we're not going to go into chapter 9 today, but I highly encourage that you take the time to read it uh, because Paul goes into this ideal and the significance and the importance of giving. Okay. So as I was saying earlier, um, Paul is only saying this because he's trying to address certain issues and particular situations that the church or the writer of the letter to him um, is needing, right? And it's some kind of attention that Paul uh, brings up these certain things. So um, when we look here uh, in, in these two sections, in chapters 8 and 9, and then particularly in today's passage in chapter 8, verse 1 to 15, uh, there's clearly some kind of issue. And I like to refer to this issue as a very beefed up uh, excuse that they have kind of made. Right? And Paul now is trying to grab their attention okay, in this letter. So we see in the letter, he begins, right, by talking about an example, okay? He says, look to the church of Macedonia, okay? Now, Macedonia is a region, okay? It's the northern part of Greece, modern-day Greece as we know it, okay? And um, the, the southern part, okay, is Asaya, okay? And Asaya is where Paul is referring to the church in Corinth. Corinth is from the southern part of Greece, okay? And so he's talking about the northern part of Greece, and he's talking about these, these three different churches, okay? The church of Philippi, the church of uh, Thessalonica, and the church of Berea, okay? And so we, we're familiar with the first two, Philippi and Thessalonica, right? We have the book of the Philippine, uh, Philippians, not Philippines, and then uh, Thessalonians, right? So we have these two letters that Paul also addresses, but he's referring to these churches in these areas. And so basically, he's telling the church of Corinth this. He's saying, look, God's grace 
has been poured out to you, right? Even in the midst of your trial, even in the midst of your persecution, even in the midst of your, your poverty, your extreme poverty, okay, that, that they have abounded in their generosity. In their giving, they are overflowing, right? Despite the fact that they're going through all of this struggle. And this is really interesting, interesting because Paul right here, what I see is he's eliminating the excuses that your church of Corinth is trying to give. Okay? He, he's, he's, giving, he's giving the example of saying, hey, like, look at the excuse that you have of, well, I don't have enough to give or I'm not in the best situation to give. Paul is saying, hey, look at this church. They have absolutely, no, they're extremely poor. They have very little, and not only that, they're going through difficult times, yet they want to give. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, well, we should compare ourselves to other people. Like, let's compare ourselves, let's look at other people, and let's use them as a standard of how we should give. Uh, And I think, you know, obviously that kind of train of thought is unhealthy. But something that Paul is doing is he's trying to eliminate and point out the excuses that really just don't work, right? And it's something for us to ponder upon, right? Because these people, the churches in Macedonia, have nothing. They have very little, okay? They're in trial and tribulation. Yet the Bible says, Paul says, that this group of people are so eager and so wanting to give, okay? Because you see, to God, it's not about how much we can give. It's about how willing we are to give. And that's exactly what we see uh, with, the, with the, uh, the churches in Macedonia, right? Their willingness to give is what made the difference, not necessarily how much they had. Verse 3 and 4 testifies to this ideal and says that the church gave according to their means or to what they had, what they owned. And it wasn't because anyone commanded them. It wasn't because someone forced them to do it. It's because they genuinely and sincerely wanted to. You see, Paul is pointing to not just any kind of giving, but he's pointing to this very genuine, beautiful, authentic form of Christian giving. You see, Paul continues on throughout his letter, and he beautifully explains it, as as you will see. But this is the key. Okay, This kind of giving is not a result of being commanded. It's because in verse 5 it says, they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. In other words, what Paul is trying to say, if we want to learn how to give generously, we must first learn to give ourselves to God. Okay, he continues, right? This is so, so beautiful. But he continues on in verse 7 and he says um, that, that he understands, hey, your church the church in Corinth, you guys have a lot of things, right? You guys have a lot of things under your belt, right? You guys have your faith. You understand your faith. You guys have these talents. You you have these skills. You have these abilities. He knows that this church in Corinth is highly capable, right? He's he's had this relationship with them for a while now. And he, he implies that, yeah, you guys know that yourself. You guys know that you have all of these things. But Paul is alluding to the fact that they're missing one thing. And Paul is encouraging them to take part of it. And that is the missing piece of giving. You see, 
The church of Corinth knows. Paul says in verse 9, he says, You guys know that Jesus, even though he was so rich for you and for me, he came down and became poor so that through his poverty that we may have riches. You see, Paul understood. And Paul is telling this church, you guys know that you have everything, but you're missing the big picture of giving. That's the one thing you're forgetting. You see, if we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we must not hoard and, and keep things to ourselves, but we must learn to give just as Christ gave to us. Okay, the all-around principle of why we do things and why we do the things that we do, it's not because pastor said so. Pastor didn't say like, oh, you have to give, so please go do it. That is not the reason, right? It's not because tradition says so. It's not because, oh, in my family, we've done this for many years, right? It's not because we want to be good people or it makes us feel better, okay? The whole ideal of giving, this all-around principle that we have to understand, and, and actually, you can apply it to many other things, but... It's because we do these things because God first did it for us, right? First John chapter four, verse one to 21, we see this breakdown of the beauty and the power of what God's love has done for you and I, right? Verse 11 says, if God so loved us, then we too, we also should love one another. And then in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. You see, it's this reciprocation, this, this mirror reflection that we give back to not only God, but we give back to others. And this is an essential part of our Christian walk. So you see, it's very clear. And we know in the life of Paul, in all his letters and in his life, that that. Paul looks to Jesus Christ as the center, as the model, and as the example of what it means to give, right? And we too should follow in that pattern that Jesus leaves for us, right? We should learn to reciprocate. We should learn to reflect. We should learn to to mirror that to people around us. And it's that simple. And Paul, all Paul is saying is that you guys get it. Mentally, intellectually, you guys understand all of this. So all I ask you to do now is just do it, right? But some of us may think like, oh man, like Paul is trying to create this really weird type of society, right? Especially when we live in a society nowadays where it's about, let me build my assets. Let me build my kingdom. Let me build my dominion. Let me build my, my everything, okay? Paul is painting a different picture. And we may think like, why is Paul trying to create this weird kind of society of, of just giving, right? Is he trying to ruin them? Is he trying to make poor people poor and rich people poor and, and trying to ruin this system that we have, okay? Is he trying to make people go through suffering? Well, obviously not, right? And I hope you guys don't get that impression. Um, but what Paul is trying to do is this, okay? Paul wants them to give out of their present abundance so that none may have need, okay? So let me break that down. For Paul, being centered on Jesus Christ means looking beyond our current set of events and, and recognizing how every single person on this earth, we are somehow, some way interconnected with one another. And, and God can use these connections that we have with people as a way to transform lives. I have a need today. 
that you can help me with so that for your need tomorrow, I can be a help to you. That's the whole ideal. That's the principle of the early church. That's how Paul envisioned and imagined and lived out these church systems. It wasn't a system of of me, 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 but rather it's what can I do for you so that what you, what I need, you can do for me as well, right? It's this circle, right? Uh, Last night during our Vespers, uh, some of the youth pointed out something very beautiful uh, that, that I think is important for us to know, right? That, that, that when we have less, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can't give because the reality is when we have less and we learn to give when we have little, we actually are gaining so much more. And this is the community and system that Paul and God is trying to instill in our Christian communities. Paul is not promoting this, this let's be, you know, dependent or, or even self-sufficiency. He's not talking about either of these. Instead, he's proposing this ideal of mutual love and compassion with one another and, and uh, pulling together resources so that we can help one another. You know, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians, and, and we're not going to go too much into depth on all the rest of it. But Paul says, uh, Paul says this, basically, God's work is not just something that happens in us. It also happens through us, through our actions. Okay. Now, I know everyone, not everyone uh, 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 likes to make excuses or not everyone does make an excuse. Okay. I know sometimes it's like, you know, I get it. I understand it. Like, you know, like we, we understand the gospel message. I understand like what Jesus did for me. He died on the cross for me. He loved me first. So I should love others. We get it. Right. But it's just, it's just giving is just so hard. Like, it's just, we're not, we just, our bodies are not made that way to function that way. Right. But, but this is the thing. The final thing I want to share with you today is this. And this is something that we have to pray for every day. This, this particular piece, okay? And I would say that not only does it apply to giving, but I would say it applies to just our Christian walk in general. And so I want to challenge you guys to ponder upon this. You guys know in Romans chapter 7, right? We find um, Paul's kind of discourse or Paul's kind of theological kind of breakdown of of this very tongue-twisting, kind of confusing section, right? He goes like, you know, uh, and uh, uh, what I want to do, I can't do because I hate to do it, but yet I still do it. uh, And it's not because of me, but it's because of sin that's in me that makes me do the things that I don't want to do, right? So if you haven't, you know, heard of that and you think I'm like crazy talking, look at Romans 7 and you'll see that very complicated, uh, very uh, uh, interesting dialogue that he has. Uh, but Paul understands that it's our human nature and is no different to us today that we too have this human nature that drags us around, making us do the things that we don't want to do when we know we shouldn't do it. And for the things that we should do, we can't do because we don't do, right? Uh, and so Paul understands this and this is very real to us today, right? How many of you guys know this? You guys understand it. You, you learn about it. We study about it and you're just like, yeah, like that's great. And then you just can't do it because it's just something a part of you just, just turns you away from that path, right? But you see, I believe that the answer and the key for us 
to really learn to live out this Christian life, right? This Christian walk and in light of our series, in order for us to learn how to give, we have to daily pray for God to give us new hearts. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27 says this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You see, the reality is this. Paul understands that we all have this heart of stone. It's filled with sin and it's always going to be a challenge for you to give like Christ gave to us, to others, right? for you to live your Christian walk like God did for us, to love others as God loved us, to give as God gave to us, right? this is always going to be a struggle and a challenge. It's not going to come naturally okay? because of our hearts of stone. And this is why we have to learn, as Ezekiel says, to surrender our hearts of old and to ask God, to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh, a heart that wants to give, a heart that yearns and wants to love, a heart that wants to worship. You see, God is calling us and Paul is reminding us that in order for us to truly have this this want, desire, and this this yearning to, to give, we must first learn to give ourselves to God. And by giving ourselves to God, God promises us that He will provide us a heart that will want to do these things, right? You you see, in verse 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, right? To cause you to follow my decrees. You see, this is the action that God takes in our lives. But it begins by us surrendering and asking God daily, Lord, give me a heart that wants to love. Give me a heart that wants to give. So you see, church, as we wrap up this series on giving, as we talk about the many different facets and different different aspects of, 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 of how we give and what giving means, we have it all in our head. We understand it. We get it, right? Pastor has drilled it for four weeks, okay? But the real challenge now is learning to ask God, God, This is our prayer. And this is my prayer all the time. God, give me a new heart. Give me a heart that wants to give. Give me a heart that wants to love. Give me a heart that wants to live a life for you. Church, I pray that this is our challenge. I pray that this is our prayer. And I pray that as we continue to live this lifestyle of giving, that we can remember and reflect and take action upon the life that God gave for us, the love that he poured for us, and help us to reciprocate that to the world we live in. Let's pray.